This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Being a pilot is about passion and dedication. The early mornings, hours invested, constantly learning procedures and details, there's a lot to do. Membership in AOPA makes doing the groundwork easier so you can get into the sky. With the power of thousands of pilots united behind you, get access to exclusive resources, practical benefits, and fierce advocacy that helps enhance and protect your freedom to fly. Join us. Visit aopa.org slash membership or give us a call at 800-872-2672. My first thought was the attitude indicator had failed because I saw it roll 30 degrees left and then it just came whipping back to the right. So I started looking at the other instruments and the turn and bank is going with the attitude indicator and now the directional gyro is spinning to the right too. The altimeter's unwinding now, and the vertical speed's going down, airspeed's building up, and I was totally unexpected. I was not prepared for this moment at all. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Williamsburg, Virginia pilot, Bill Fredericks. He's about a thousand-hour general aviation pilot who started flying at 13 years old, earned his glider certificate as early as he could at 16, then his powered private pilot license at 17. He's an IFR-rated multi-engine pilot, and today he's going to share a story with us about flying his Mooney M20J in night IMC conditions and wrestling with a faulty autopilot. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to this opportunity to share with other pilots to help them uh, recognize some lessons learned so that others don't make the same mistakes that I did. So share your story with us. You were flying night, IMC, single pilot. That by itself can be a challenging scenario. What happened? So this was the Sunday after Thanksgiving, just after my wife and I got married. We got married and. 2015. So I think it was that following Thanksgiving and it was the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So we had just been up at my parents' house in Massachusetts. I took off from New Bedford, Massachusetts in route all the way back to Williamsburg, Virginia, nonstop. So Mooney covers ground pretty nicely. My dad, as I mentioned before, at the time he was actually still employed as an airline pilot. He's retired now and he had made a comment to me like, how's the weather look? And I said, hey, the thermal area forecasts for down there at Newport News overcast 800 feet. And I said, hey, I'm comfortable with personal minimums for a precision approach to 500 feet. 
And it's like, okay. And then that was the end of his supervision of me. And uh, taking off from Massachusetts, beautiful, clear day. We went to church with my parents Sunday morning. Then we had lunch with them and then headed to the airport. And by the time we're wheels up, call it, it was mid to late afternoon at that point. With the headwinds, it was a little over a three-hour flight from New Bedford, Massachusetts to Williamsburg, Virginia. What's the identifier for New Bedford? Uh, K-E-W-B. K-E-W-B, and for Newport News, it's K- K-P-H-F. P-H-F. Okay. Okay, great. So I've got a, um, I had a stratus, so I was looking at the weather updates. And when we were over New Jersey, all the TAFs updated for the area. And pretty much everything in Southeast Virginia, the TAFs all updated to overcast 400 or overcast 500 feet when I was about, call it a third of the way home at this point. And I was like, well, hmm, I had to make a decision at this point. And so I decided to continue instead of landing at Newport News, which had updated its TAF, I believe it was overcast 400 feet, which is below my personal minimums, but Richmond International was overcast 500 feet. So I said, we'll go to Richmond, rent a car and drive the rest of the way home to Williamsburg and get the airplane later. And uh, at about, call it, we're passing through Southern Delaware into Maryland on the Eastern shore is when we went IMC. And not much longer after that, the, the sun had set and it became dark. So about the last hour of the journey was night IMC and um, headed towards Richmond at this point. And the final approach controller vectored me in really tight to the final approach fix. So I just spun around the heading bug and clicked approach button on the autopilot. And in hindsight, what I should have done right then and there was tell the controller, unable, please bring me around, new radar vector, line me up straight. So there was a mistake that I would do differently again in the future. But in either case, I spun around the heading bug to the localizer course, clicked approach, and then looked down to go start looking for my checklist. Because I was about to hit the final approach fix, had to get the flaps down, the gear down, prop up, all that stuff. And as I'm looking for the checklist on the floor, I'm like in my ears going, what's going on? Something's funky. And I look up and I look at my instruments and the attitude indicator is rolling left and it rolled left to about 30 degrees. And then it started whipping back to the right. And my first thought is, did my attitude indicator fail? This is weird. Again, this is night IMC. I can't see squat out the window. All I have is instruments. So, Bill, can you share with us what kind of avionics uh, package did you have in the Mooney? Is it an old-style kind of six-pack, or is it glass instrumentation? What kind of attitude indicator did you have? Yeah, I had old-style six-pack. So I had a vacuum-driven attitude indicator, a vacuum-driven directional gyro, and then on the left was airspeed and turn and bank. On the right was altimeter and vertical speed. And then for the radios, I'd recently installed the new Avidyne IFD 540. Great piece of gear. So yeah, six pack, steam gauges, vacuum driven. So my first thought was the attitude indicator had failed because I saw it roll 30 degrees left and then it just came whipping back to the right. 
And then in my ears, I'm like, no, 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 this airplane is rolling big time right now. And then so I started looking at the other instruments and the turn and bank is going with the attitude indicator. And now the directional gyro is spinning to the right too. And the altimeter is unwinding now and the vertical speeds going down, airspeed's building up. And as I was working through this, it was probably 20 or 30 seconds. And it took from the time I hit approach to the time I worked through what was going on and made the decision that my autopilot had failed me to, 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 to say, I need to disconnect the autopilot by the time it's 20 or 30 seconds to work through all that. And I was totally unexpected. I was not prepared for this moment at all. And so by the time I decided to disengage the autopilot, I was rolling right through 45 degrees and the bank angle was winding up. I'd already lost 700 feet from the final approach fix. If I recall on that approach to Richmond, it's a 2000 foot altitude as you approach the final approach fix. And I'd already lost 700 feet by the time I decided to um, disengage the autopilot. And um, my heart is just pounding. I can feel my heart pounding. The adrenaline's just surging down my arms. And I remember my dad telling me one time, if you ever feel like you're getting vertigo, just shrink your entire world to nothing but the attitude indicator. Nothing else matters. Um, set your proper pitch angle, get wings level. And um, I'm sorry, I'm starting to get choked up because this was such a near-death experience for my wife and I. And uh, so I said, I was talking out loud to myself, wings level, five degrees nose up. And I also jammed in the throttle too at this point and just kept saying to myself, wings level, five degrees nose up. I'm pretty sure the controller was just squawking at me at this point too, because he's watching me on radar. And I don't think I was even replying to him at this point. Um, so it took me probably another 30 seconds for my ears to not be swirling so bad anymore. And um, once I was, my head was level, got back on the frequency and said, hey, I had to go missed. I think I told him I had an autopilot problem. I'm now hand flying the airplane and then to vector me around again for another approach. And so he had vectored me around to a downwind. Richmond International updated their ATIS to overcast 300 feet. And at that point, I seemed to recall getting on the frequency saying, I need help. What runway were you on at Richmond? It was landing to the northeast. I forget the exact number, but it was the runway landing to the northeast. Runway 2, and were you flying the ILS localizer to runway 2? That's correct, yep. So he came back a little bit later. He said, Richmond Executive is reporting overcast 500 feet. I said, okay, thank you. Give me a radar vector, and then I'll need some time to get that approach played up and centered up. And honestly, that was like my second in-flight mistake, was that decision there, headed towards Richmond Executive, which is on the southwest side of the city of Richmond, and um, got that approach dialed mm. up. And as I shoot that up, I keyed up the mic to turn on the airport lights. There's no tower there. And then when I broke out, by the way, that was my third mistake. When I broke out, I was only at 300 feet and the airport lights were off. And so the, what was on was a VASI light. And my first thought was the four bar VASI 
or the four light vasi, which was on the left side of the runway, was the threshold lights. So I started lining up on that. My wife goes, Bill, the runway's over there. And like I shook my head for a second. I'm like, oh, what am I doing? And I saw it and then turned back to the right and set it down on the run and broke out at 300 feet. So it's not like there was a lot of time there. Set it down and taxied back in. And as I shut that, shut that engine down, I just turned into jello for a few minutes. And um, yeah, that, that was a hair-raising event for sure what happened that evening. Yeah, it sounds like it was. I, I want to go back and walk through that a little bit. So yeah. you get vectors onto the runway zero two approach at Richmond, and I believe you said it was the ILS approach you're shooting there. Short vectors, so did you say you're coming in inside uh, the final approach fix? It, it was less than a mile from the final approach fix. Okay. So like that's why I just spun around the heading bug and hit approach because the the intercept I was coming in was like basically just outside the final approach fix. Okay, okay, and so you spin your heading bug to get the autopilot turning that way. You select approach, and now you go heads down to pick up. I think you said your checklist. Yes. Yep. In that scenario, well, there's a couple things to think about there. So when you come back, you see an attitude indicator that doesn't make sense to you. Yeah. And so that scenario is a disorientation kind of a scenario. Whenever we're in IMC conditions and we move our head down or away from the attitude indicator, especially if it's in a down situation, then that can induce spatial disorientation. Yeah. So I can see how your first reaction was to think that, I've become spatially disoriented. I'm I'm in an improper attitude. But then you take a look at it and you think, well, wait a second. My attitude indicator seems not to go right. But then you take the step to verify that. You know, that's that's the thing that we do when we see anything that looks strange, especially in instrument conditions, is identify, verify, then act. So in your verification, you're like, well, hang on a second. This attitude indicator is kind of tracking with the other instruments I have, right? Is that kind of yeah. the process you were going through? Exactly. And th the thought wasn't even crossing my mind at this point that something was wrong with the autopilot. I, I, my, my thoughts were there's something wrong with the attitude indicator for basically the first half of this 20 to 30 second period. Was your first thought that when you glanced at the attitude indicator coming from being heads down, looking on the floor to looking up to go, oh, I, I kind of, you know, got disoriented here. Or I got myself into an unusual attitude. Was that your first reaction? No, my first reaction was the attitude indicators failed. That was my first reaction. Okay. Yeah. So your very first one was you look down, you come up, you see that and you say, oh, man, what a time for my attitude indicator to fail. Yes. But then you go through that verification step, so you recognize and verify, and your verification step, thankfully you went through that step, says, no, the attitude indicator didn't fail because it's yeah. tracking with your HSI and tracking with your uh, VVI and some of your other instruments. Yeah, the turn and bank. Yeah, I looked at the turn and bank, and the turn and bank was going with the roll on the attitude indicator. And at this point, I was noticing just the swirling going on inside my ears, too. Yeah, okay. And so from there, how did you figure out? And you figured it out in relatively short order because I'm with you. You're looking at that approach. That final approach fix is 2,000 feet 
you're roughly 2,000 feet AGL, maybe a little bit less, and you're going through 45 degrees of bank. Now, inside the final approach fix, you're an extremist here. This is a very demanding situation. Yeah. And I had lost, I was down to 1,300 feet on the altimeter by the time I disconnected the autopilot. So how did you figure out with all that going on that it was the autopilot causing this? The fact that the six-pack were consistent among themselves is really what it came down to, and that the autopilot was commanding this motion of the airplane. Because that's an important step you took and a critical step because usually autopilots are reliable and usually they're a good step when you're in any kind of really strange situation and IMC conditions as you're entering the approach and now things start going a little bit wonky in your cockpit. Usually that autopilot can be a savior for you. But in this case, your autopilot was going to be your demise if you didn't figure this out. Correct. So that that can be a difficult thing to recognize. And it's a it's a critical action that you took because if you were wrong, if you went through that identify process, then the verify and you were wrong, now to disconnect the autopilot would have just about sealed your fate. Yeah. But in this case, it's what saved you. Yeah. And um I'm confident Guardian Angel was helping me too. Yeah, it sounds like. So you figure that. And so once you kind of figure out, no, this verification step process, and you just figure, I've got to get control of this airplane. So you disconnect the autopilot. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I I have had it before where an autopilot and a trim goes bad on me and my yoke disconnects, which wouldn't disconnect it. And so thankfully, and I always do this, whenever I get into a cockpit and it has an autopilot, and an electric trim, I always make sure I know exactly where those circuit breakers are. That's a really good point. I don't check that. And I I hit the yoke mount to disconnect, and the switch worked fine. I've never had an issue with the yoke mount disconnect, but that's a really good point. I've heard other people say that their yoke mount disconnect hasn't worked before, too. So it wasn't a problem for you in this scenario. Yeah. I just want to remind people that... That's a really good step to take if you're going to fly in IFR conditions with an autopilot or an electric trim. Make sure before you take off, you know exactly where those circuit breakers are so you can get to them quickly. I've had to do that twice uh, in IMC conditions. Wow. So anyway, so you figure that you disconnect and thankfully that works. When you started hand flying the airplane, did the problem sort of immediately resolve? And were you thinking you could still capture the approach? Had you already decided, no, forget about the approach? How did that work? Yeah, like um, mentally, I was like, I'm not landing this airplane now. I put in left input to start bringing wings back level, jammed in the throttle, and then pitched up five degrees nose up. And I didn't care what those needles were saying at that point. I was going around. And I think your coaching from your father was great coaching and it came back in a situation where you needed it. And that, to me, illustrates that it's training that you had undertaken with him and then alone by yourself to reinforce that scenario that if that ever happened to you, your whole world, I love the way you describe that, your whole world becomes the attitude indicator because in IMC conditions, when you're disoriented, that is your only way out to trust your life with that attitude indicator and focus entirely on that and know, as you did, 
what your attitude settings need to be for the situation. In this case, a go-around, full power, cleaned up in five degrees nose high. Sounds like that's what you do in a Mooney. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And some of the things I've learned after this incident, I started um, messing with my autopilot some more and other flights. And what I figured out, so this is the original autopilot from 1981 when the airplane was manufactured by Mooney. Nothing has been touched in it. And like I went to avionics shops to talk through what happened and multiple shops said, I'm not going to touch that autopilot. Too much of a liability for us. We're not willing to, to touch it. And I heard that from multiple avionics shops. And on day VFR flights, after this incident, I started messing with it. And what I learned is, so it's, it's not a modern digital computer like computers are today. It's an old analog device with resistors, capacitors, and ductors. Mm. But the moral of the story was, I need to be in heading bug mode with the nasal centered for, call it, 10 seconds of time prior to hitting the approach button in order to let the integrators on the autopilot to sort of center up and steady out. And by spinning around the heading bug and hitting approach, it just put a big transient into that old analog computer and garbage in, garbage out. But the autopilot works really well and nicely if it doesn't have to go through this big intercept transient. If it's just wings level tracking straight into the localizer and hit approach, it works fine. But as I give it a big engagement transient, mm. um, it, it just craps the bed out. And one of the other lessons learned, and at the time of this event, I was still working for NASA as an aerospace engineer. And uh, as part of the on-demand mobility conference, I had a conversation with two FAA guys and the small airplane director, and I shared the same story with them. And I said to them, guys, your whole paradigm of certification is, is off. This autopilot is certified. This autopilot is not safe. It nearly killed me. And at the time, back in 2015, this was prior to the autopilot STC process, and I don't want to say I am the reason why it happened, but probably I'm a small reason to contribute why they started shifting their mentality to approve autopilots more quickly. As I said, in the experimental market, there are brand new digital autopilots that are not certified, but I am guaranteed that they're way safer than the certified autopilot in my airplane. And I'm very glad to see that the FAA is expediting the approval process of new autopilot technology into airplanes. So that's a lesson learned, too. So, Bill, I want to go back to the scenario. So you regain control of the airplane and you start to go around and you tell the controller, well, you hear the weather has gone down. Yeah. And you tell the controller you need some place with better weather. They send you to Richmond Executive. Yeah, and that was another mistake because Richmond Executive is a non-towered airport, so it's just automated weather. And in practice, I bet you the weather, well, fact, I, I broke out of the bottoms at 300 feet. So the weather at Richmond Executive wasn't any different than at Richmond International. And I should have just shot the approach again into Richmond International because I was already queued up for that. I already had the plates up, the approach was loaded, and going over to Richmond Exec was adding more challenges and more burdens when I was already feeling workload saturated. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I should have just stayed at the towered airport. 
Now, let me ask you, was fuel an issue for you at all at this point, or did you have enough fuel for plenty of options? Uh, no, I had um, at least five hours of fuel on board, so like okay. two hours of reserve. So fuel was not a factor. Yeah, it's it's easy to sit here at zero knots and 1G in clear weather and say, well, in hindsight, but I agree with your assessment. You've already tried that approach. The reason why you went missed had nothing to do with the weather really or not understand the approach it was you battling through this system problem that you were having yeah and so to stay there in an approach you'd already flown and already have set up yeah in hindsight that makes a lot of sense but i can see why you thought i don't want to attempt i'm having a bad day now i'm pretty stressed out i want to get to where there's clear weather i i can understand that thinking as well though yes that was that was exactly where my head was at. Is like I'm already stressed out. I don't want to shoot a low approach in this uh, sort of mental state. Um, so that's where my head was at. But it was just a, a warm front coming through, and it was really widespread weather. So I mean, to have any significant better weather, I would have had to fly a really long way to get to any significantly better weather. So. I should have just shot the same approach again, which I was already queued up for and stuff. Yeah. That's an interesting lesson learned, too, is I always like to know my bailout direction. And what I mean by that is where is the weather coming from? Where is it going to? So if this gets worse than what I want, what direction am I going to bail out? South, north, east, west, whatever the case is. Yeah, and in this case, it would have been back north where I came from. Back north, yeah, because you had mentioned you just around Maryland or Delaware is kind of where you went IMC. Yeah, but it would have been an hour before I get back to clear skies. So, I mean, that's a really long way to back to clear skies. So Long way, yeah. And so knowing, once again, knowing that general weather pattern is kind of helpful because if situations come up that you're not expecting, you know what direction to go to try to get to a better conditions. Yeah. In your case, it was kind of socked in all around you there. So the point you're making, I think, is it didn't really matter. The weather at Richmond was going to be about the same as Richmond Executive, which isn't that far away anyway, which is going to be about the same as yeah. Williamsburg, where you were headed. You know, all yeah. of that was going to be about the same weather. Yeah, So correct. The other thing I learned, too, with without having the airport lights on, at the time, when you would click the mic, push the talk button on the Avidyne IFD 540, it takes about one second for the radio to key up. And so basically what that means is you can't turn on airport lighting with that radio. So what I learned after that flight was I need to use COM2, which is an, an old-fashioned radio that keys up instantly, and use COM2 to turn on airport lighting because the, the digital navcom gps from avidyne doesn't key up immediately i should say didn't key up immediately i I did follow avidyne and they did say that a fix was in progress so this was years ago so i'm sure the units are fine now and don't have that issue but that was another lesson learned so that was i was going to ask you so now you set up for the approach your i'm curious when you came in for that next approach at richmond executive you, you didn't really know why at this point. You just knew that your autopilot had failed you. So I'm guessing you never went back to it again. Correct. I was hand flying the whole time. I did not want to turn it back on. So you come around, uh, they give you vectors. Yeah. You are coming into Richmond Executive. And, and I agree with you, all things being equal, 
under tough conditions and low weather, I'd rather go to a towered field where you've got just better lighting. You've got somebody yeah. in the tower helping you. A lot of times there's an approach control. There's just so much more help for you. It's less demanding as a pilot to go into a towered field. Yeah. But you're coming in, you go over to the frequency, and you click it so you think the light, you're shooting this approach thinking the light should be on, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So you come down and you break out lower than you expected, 300 feet, yeah. right at minimums or close to it. And t- tell me again, what was the visual illusion that you saw that you locked onto? The four light vases were on at a dim setting. So my first thought was the four light vasi were the threshold lights. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And how did your wife pick up the runway? Does she, she just, is she experienced in flying with you? Is she a pilot? How did she know what she was looking at? She's not a pilot, but she's flown with me a bunch. And then... Probably I was just feeling so task saturated, like I probably wasn't thinking straight. And she sort of like with what she said, knocked a little bit of sense back into my rational brain. My dad would sometimes say, make sure you don't look but not see. And I think I was just in one of those modes without engaging my rational brain where I was looking but not actually seeing what I was looking at. And when she said that, I did a double take and actually started seeing, and I'm like, oh, um, that's the runway over there, and the lights are all off. Wow, so helpful, because it seems like what was happening there was your bias, right, what's called a desirability bias, you were seeing what you desperately wanted to see. After this demanding situation, you wanted to see the runway lights. So you look out and see some lights, and by golly, those are going to be runway lights. And I see four lights in a straight row, and, oh, that's got to be the threshold right there. Yeah. Right. So that we as humans have a tendency to do that, to see what we expect to see and see what we want to see. And what it takes sometimes to break us from that chain is that outside objective voice like your wife played here and say, wait a second, that's not what you think it is. What a fantastic role she played there because – that probably made the difference. You you likely would have seen that there was no runway there, but it would have been so late that now you'd have probably had to go around and come back and do this all over again. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't even remember it that well. I, I just remember her saying that. And then I remember like swerving to the right and back to the left to line up and just, it was swerve, swerve, wheels on the pavement. Mm. It seemed like it was that quick. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Let's go back to her what was she like and how did you manage each other in the cockpit when things were in in dire straits? Yeah, I don't think the gravity of the situation really was oppressed upon her. I don't think she, she quite understood just how close to dying we were. And I sort of talked about disengaging the autopilot, had to hand fly. And she's like, oh, well, that's good because I know you train for stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, we train for stuff like that. But... <laughs> Until it really happened, it's... (laughs) Wow, that that is a demanding scenario. And mostly right, we've mentioned it before, but right in that window where you look down and you look back up, instruments are all haywire. And it just stresses the importance of that verification step. If you just skip that and gone to try to correct or overcorrect you may have made your situation worse and unrecoverable. Yeah. But verifying that, hmm, okay. And then identifying what the real problem was and, and then having the skills to hand fly in a demanding scenario. 
So well done. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, another thing my dad would tell me is good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing he says is, is a superior pilot relies on superior judgment to never have to use superior skill. Yeah. And the analogy that I've heard you use with like Swiss cheese and the holes lining up, I had a lot of holes lined up in the layers of Swiss cheese. And the one catch at the very last slice of cheese was my hand flying skills with vertigo to get the airplane wings level again after losing all that altitude. Mm. That was the final piece of Swiss cheese that prevented my wife and I from dying. Well, Bill, did we capture all your lessons learned from this scenario? Yeah. Let me try to, to summarize the lessons learned. I've adjusted my personal minimums. The first adjustment is to never include IMC night single pilot. If all three of those yellows stack up, that's a red no-go. I'm not willing to do it. So that was a lesson learned. Another lesson learned, know your equipment really well. Like I didn't realize till this event that my uh, navigator couldn't queue up airport lights. The issue with the old autopilot. Another lesson learned was the forecasts. So that was sort of a, a told you so moment. My dad told me about is like, well, it's fall. I mean, your coastal area, like, yeah, you should expect the ceiling to go down significantly. And I was like, well, why didn't the weather forecasters estimate that when they wrote the TAF? And he's like, I don't know. But he's like, I've seen multiple times where a TAF might be saying one thing. And then by the time four or five hours later, the real weather conditions, the ceilings are dramatically lower than the TAF ever forecast. So that was another lesson learned. To, if I'm going on such a long trip where the weather can significantly change while in flight, I'm not going to take off unless it's VFR at the destination, or I should say marginal VFR, ceilings above a thousand feet, knowing that the weather can deteriorate over that long flight. So that's another lesson learned. And then not so much for a pilot, but the great lesson learned is the FAA improving the approval process for new autopilot technology. I'm convinced if the same thing happened to other people that didn't have a guardian angel helping them, that is fatalities we probably have seen for Vertigo and IMC. Well, Bill, thanks so much for sharing your story. We're glad your training came to the forefront and you made it out and that your dad's voice was echoing in your head and helped you out of this demanding scenario. Bravo to you and to him both. Thank you very much. Well, there's a situation that could have turned out quite differently. And Bill was able to make it through that demanding scenario by relying on his training. And we'll just reinforce in an unusual attitude situation to recognize, verify, and then act. And that verification process was so important to him recovering from that scenario. And then having the skills, keeping his skills up sharp to hand fly that approach into demanding conditions and had his wife on board that provides some helpful information to him at a pretty critical time. All in all, a lot of good lessons learned that came out of this scenario. We hope you find them useful. Thanks for listening. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. 
Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. <laughs>